0: Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, Tyler Crawley, and as always, we are on every major podcasting platform. So go there, find us, listen, and leave us a nice review. It's really all that we ask for. Now, I do have to apologize for not being here on Monday, and usually my excuse is I just couldn't find the time. That's not the case in this situation. I was actually out of town, and I do not have my mobile podcasting unit up and running, which means I don't have a microphone and a kit and everything else I can take with me, but I will soon enough. And for a good reason that I do not want to get into right now, but I, you will know soon enough, but I hopefully will have that all put together very soon. So if I am ever out of town again, I will be able to do this show. I will not have to be at my home and in my studio in order to make that happen. So Hopefully that excuse, like any other excuse, there will be no excuses going forward for me not doing a show, but hopefully those will all be in the past very, very soon. So we got a lot going on. A lot happened on Monday. The big story actually was housing vouchers, in my opinion. To me, it was the big story. It was a piece in City Journal. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, but I think the big one of the big stories yesterday was the Black Knight May Mortgage Monitor Report. Yeah, try and say that three times fast. You would think... The alliteration would help, but uh, no, it's actually a little bit confusing there. And this monthly report looks at overall rate lock volume, which was down 4.7% in May. And I like looking at rate lock volume because that's a better indicator than, say, the weekly data that we get from the Mortgage Bankers Association, which we do appreciate. Because it is very helpful in seeing what is happening with the beginning stage of a mortgage, which is asking for an application. But rate lock is obviously a stronger indicator if that customer, that client, is going to get to the finish line. I mean, it's not always. You're not talking 100% with a rate lock, but it is a better indicator than someone just asking for an application and possibly beginning the pro- uh, the process. And so rate lock is definitely a good indicator of what's happening with regards to mortgages and housing and everything else. So it's down 4.7%. Not surprising. Now, you would think that this is being led by purchase lock um, a drop in the in the uh, purchase locks, but that's not actually what you're saying. I mean, it's part of it. Three point four percent is what purchase locks fell, but refis actually fell even more. With cash out and rate term refinances falling three point four percent and eight point two percent respectively. Now, not surprising, the average loan amount increased one point nine percent. That's six thousand dollars to three hundred and sixteen thousand five hundred. Why? Home prices are increasing across the country. It is not surprising that you would see the loan amount also increasing. Now, what was interesting, it's not surprising or not surprising, it's just interesting, is that cash out and purchase loans were both up from last May. But late term, or I should say late term, rate term refinance lending was down 45% year over year. And if you think about it, where were we a year ago? We were kind of in the depth of COVID. And so people, they were seeing the rates fall. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen with the economy. Rates were dropping across the board and people were in homes and they're sitting there thinking, I don't know what's going to happen to this economy, but it sure would be nice if I can lower my monthly payment. Now, you might think, well, Tyler, wouldn't they want to do a cash out refi and secure up some cash? We didn't know what was going to happen with housing. Housing prices might have dropped. And so you do a cash out refi, all of a sudden you're underwater in your house. Also, if you do a cash out refi, your payment may not drop depending on how much money you take out. And so doing a just straight up rate term refinancing without question, either one, you'll probably keep your payment. So let's say you you shrink the uh, term at the amount of time you're going to be paying off your loan, that could obviously be beneficial. So your payment stays the same, or you keep the same time frame and lower your rate and your payment drops. And so it's not surprising that last year, that was a very popular route that a lot of people were going. But here was another interesting point that was made by Scott Happ, who is the Black Knight Secondary Marketing Technologies president. And he said, yeah, yeah. Inventory shortages are no doubt having a role, but there's also something else. He said the severity of shortages in for sale inventory seems to be a key driver in dropping purchase locks, but the dip in refis seemed to have more to do with borrower psychology. And so what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that when we saw rates jump up in February and in March, it kind of freaked a lot of people out. And it's it's kind of funny because you talk to people in the mortgage industry who've been in the business for a while and you talk about three percent and how amazing and just how like amazingly low that number is from a historical standpoint. And now people hear three percent and they're like, Oh, what? No, my friend got two and three quarters, and my friend got two and a half, and and all of a sudden three percent is not this just amazing number anymore, even though at any other time in borrowing history, that number would be unheard of. And so I think there is a psychological component because rates have hovered around 3%. You think people would be jumping at taking advantage of those historically low rates, and they're not. At least from the refi perspective. And, and, and you might say, well, Tyler, everyone that's refied has refied. No, that's not true. If you look at the data, there are millions of people out there who could still benefit from refinancing. And so I don't know. Maybe they just through the process. I, I don't know what the reasoning is, but it could just be as, ah, oh, 3%. That's not, that's not as awesome as having two and a half or two and three quarters or whatever it may be. And yeah, that could be playing a role. It sounds like a dumb reason, but it could be playing a role. Now, I mentioned housing vouchers, and I thought this piece by Edward Glaser, I think I'm saying that right, over at City Journal was fabulous. And of course, as you all know, Mother's Podcast companion newsletter is out this morning, and you can read this piece in its entirety. And I highly recommend that you do, because Edward Glaser makes an awesome argument about why the United States government should not expand its voucher program. So last week, the House Committee on Financial Services began hearings on a plan to create, quote, a new federal voucher program aimed at paying the rent of every lower income American. A lot of people are worried. You have a lot a lot of low income Americans have still not recovered from the pandemic. They're behind on their rent. What is going to happen? We do not want to see mass evictions that will not be a good thing for our economy. It just won't be. And so one of the solutions that they're throwing out there is, well, we should expand the voucher program and provide vouchers for people. And it's not a good idea. Now, a lot of you probably know why it's not a good idea. But if you are asking yourself that question, why is it a bad idea? Well, Glacier writes that this is basically this is basically Econ 101. He says, quote, when supply is plentiful, we should subsidize consumer demand since the market can boost production without increasing prices. When supply is limited, as it did in America's most unaffordable cities, then subsidizing demand will increase prices rather than expanding access. And in case you need proof of this, a 2002 paper by Scott Susan in the Journal of Public Economics found that housing vouchers, quote, raise the rent paid by unsubsidized poor households in the average metropolitan area by 16%. Isn't this exactly what is argued time and time again with what's happening with college tuition? People People are always wondering, why is college tuition going up? And you look at the data and you look at, say, college tuition. You look at healthcare. um, Housing is another indicator in some of these. And people say, well, why is it going up? And these are the areas where the government has the most involvement, Uh, especially, like I should say, the first two. The government, yeah, is kind of involved with housing, as we all know, in the mortgage market and with Fannie and Freddie. But um, that's a little bit more complicated. But you look at, say, housing, or excuse me, you look at education, and you look at healthcare, and those are two areas where the government subsidizes so many people, and it distorts the price of those goods. And like I said, housing is not immune from this. And so getting the government more involved in housing with regards to the demand side is not good. What they should be helping out with is the supply side. And Glacier goes on to argue that yeah, when we, And I got to tell you, I am loving the fact that I'm reading more and more articles from people saying we got to do something about regulations. We got to do something about zoning laws. People are finally waking up to the reality is we do not have enough housing in this country and that needs to end. We need to have enough housing. And one of the ways to do that is to allow developers to develop Yeah, I know it's a crazy concept, but allow them to build how they want to how they want to build. Like I said, crazy concept. Now, I should point out Glacier does make this point that they should take the voucher program as is and target it. This is another failure of government. A lot of government programs aren't really anywhere near as bad as the results would lead you to believe. But one of the reasons why is they're not targeted. They need to target the people that will benefit from these Programs and Glacier writes in this piece that children, families with children, benefit tremendously from vouchers. It creates sort of this home security, and it helps them them more than anybody else. And there's evidence to back that up. And so, if they're gonna, they should keep the program as is, but target it specifically to that demographic. And then, if you want to help everyone else, let developers build more houses. Plain and simple. Very. Very simple. And the link is in today's newsletter. Now, before I run out of time, I do want to let you know some good news on the forbearance front. So the Mortgage Bankers Association weekly survey finds for the 14th week in a row, the share of mortgage loans in forbearance fell. The total number of loans now in forbearance fell 12 basis points to 4.04 percent I'm hoping next week we're going to be under 4%, which means that estimates now say that there are just 2 million homeowners in forbearance plants. I mean, that's I mean, that's a great time at any moment, better yet coming out of a recession. So yeah, 2 million, that's a pretty good number. Not surprisingly, 83.6% of loans in these forbearance programs are in forbearance Extension, but Mike and I can never pronounce Mike's last name. Should I try? Let's try. Frantatoni, uh, Frantatani, the chief economist and MBA senior vice president, said in a statement that homeowners who are reaching the end of their forbearance term need to contact their servicer to discuss the next step in the process. As servicers cannot extend the forbearance term without talking to the borrower. A lot of lenders do not want to foreclose on people and they will work with people because it's a long process. It's not like, oh, they're like, oh, I can't wait to just put this house back on the market. Nah, it takes a while. And so if they can work with you and find a way to make the transactions continue and you can stay in your home and you can continue to pay your servicer, they would much rather go that route. And so there are still options out there for people who are still in these forbearance programs. But the good news is that number is getting smaller and smaller every day. That's great news. Under 2 million. Let's end on that. Let's end on some good news. All right, you guys, enjoy your Tuesday. I will see you back here Wednesday morning. I don't plan to travel, so I should be able to do the podcast. I'll see you guys Wednesday morning. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.